0: Welcome to the Data Pulse. I'm your host, Anika. In this podcast, I dive into the growing role that data science plays in the latest biomedical innovations. Join me as I go behind the scenes and check the pulse with domain experts and rising stars who are leading advances in data-driven human health. Today, I'll be chatting with Dr. Marzi Kasimi an assistant professor at the University of Toronto in computer science and medicine. Previously, she was a visiting researcher with Alphabets Verily and a postdoc with Dr. Peter Solovitz at MIT. Prior to her PhD in computer science at MIT, Dr. Kasemi received a master's degree in biomedical engineering from Oxford University as a Marshall Scholar and BS degrees in computer science and electrical engineering as a Goldwater Scholar at New Mexico State University. Marzia was recently named one of MIT Tech Review's 35 Innovators Under 35. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here with me today, Marzia. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm excited for our conversation today, which is going to focus largely on a lot of the work that you've done in addressing problems of bias and fairness at the intersection of machine learning and healthcare. What initially motivated your interest in the space? And how did you even realize that machine learning algorithms can be unfair?
1: I think that for me, it was sort of a gradual realization. Um, So during my master's degree, I was working mostly on time series-based models to model uh, acute hypotensive episodes. So this is when your blood pressure drops really suddenly. And that's all based on these vital signs, right? You know, you look at somebody's blood pressure, their respiration rate. You don't really include anything about that person, their their gender, their age, their ethnicity. And then uh, when I moved to MIT as a graduate student, I was building similar models, but then we started to up-level the models uh, using deep neural networks. And so we were able to include more heterogeneous information. So you can combine a patient's notes with their vitals, with their labs, um, all this information together. And uh, we were getting these really great uh, performance results um, in the papers that I, I wrote as a graduate student. And in the uh, the year that I graduated, I had a uh, clinician who I, I sometimes collaborate with say, you know, these are really great uh, results. But, you know, before you think about deploying them, you know, are they are they fair models? And I, I thought that initially that was sort of a crazy question because I thought, well, I'm including All of these these variables, I'm including age in the model. The model knows about that. I'm including um, ethnicity. I'm including gender. And he said, well, maybe you should just check. (laughs) Uh, And so I did. Uh, And so I I actually uh, wrote a paper with um, my advisor, Peter Solovitz, and uh, another MIT PhD student, Irene Chen, uh, and it appeared in the uh, American uh, Medical Association Journal of Ethics, uh, and it demonstrates that uh, state-of-the-art models that are trained in a medical setting to get optimal performance on some clinical outcome are not necessarily fair. Uh, they perform less well in some patients, patients of different ethnicities, patients of different genders, patients of different insurance types. And, you know, these these kinds of... Um, issues really changed how I feel about what you should optimize for in a machine learning algorithm. And I think it's a very nuanced question. It's not really a technical question because, uh, you know, if if I told you, for example, that the average doctor is uh, 60% accurate in diagnosing something in women and 70% accurate in diagnosing the same thing in men. And my model that I train is 80% accurate in women and 90% accurate in men. Clearly the model's better, right? Numerically yeah. it's it's doing better than the average doctor. That's great. Are you comfortable deploying that model that has a noted disparity in its performance between men and women? It's better than most doctors are, maybe but it still has a disparity. And I, I don't think that's a technical question. You know, More data, better algorithms aren't going to help with that. This is an ethical question. It's, it's a question of what our
0: uh, society is comfortable with. Absolutely. This is part of why I think what you work on is so fascinating. We're not only thinking about a technology, in this case, different machine learning algorithms and the role that they have, but It's really in the context of a world in which ethics must play a key role. And it reminds me of the statement that I heard where technology isn't inherently good or bad, but the way that we use it is what can make it good or bad. And I think, especially in machine learning, even what we feed into it can make it good or bad. Exactly. You have previously spoken on how healthcare in particular differs from other domains saying that we don't fundamentally understand what it means to be healthy. Can you expand on some of the unique opportunities and challenges that you think lie in using machine learning to address problems in biomedicine?
1: Oh, definitely. I, I think that one of the things that is really challenging in this space, which is also a huge opportunity, it's, it's very exciting, is that we don't really have the same definitions in healthcare that we do in other application areas of machine learning. And those are spaces where we've seen lots of progress. So think about uh, you know, in a game, you have a defined objective. You have rewards, right? You have um, a state space. You can be in different places on a game board, for example. You also have uh, an action space. You can move up, down, left, right, right? these are these are all uh, different ways that you can interact. Or even if you look at uh, computer vision, right? If we if we collect enough, you know, millions and millions of of images, you could get a random selection of people to label those images for dogs. And it would be really easy to to get like very accurate, high accuracy labels on dogs and maybe even some breed types. But we don't really agree on, uh, you know, levels of diabetic retinopathy two experts can, you know, rate the same image and still have uncertainty between them. And these are experts. They're not random people off the street that are labeling images for dogs. These are two medical professionals who have had, you know, decades of training to be experts in their area. They can still disagree. They're allowed to disagree on this label. And I think that makes the machine learning problem very, very challenging because we've changed from, Saying, you know, humans know exactly what to look for. We know we're looking for objects. We know we're looking for dogs. Mm -hmm. And saying that we can easily acquire labels from non-experts and they'll agree, right? Most random people on Mechanical Turk will be able to say that this is a dog with some certainty. Uh, Mm -hmm. We've transformed from saying there are very few... uh, images available of this thing and, uh, you know, experts are very rare and uh, very well-trained and yet they will still disagree about this, this fundamental um, label. And so I think the challenge there is we're no longer asking for uh, a model to just mimic the data that it's given. We're asking for it to discover something. Uh, And that's very, very different. So my, uh, I think that again, the challenge here is that we're not asking to do a well-established task that humans are, very, very good at doing and just do it faster um, or with less sleep or uh, in a more scalable way. We're asking for um, some novelty. We're asking for some discovery.
0: Definitely. When I think of healthcare practice and delivery, so much of it has been systematized, yet there still remains so many variable parameters. And I think that's what you're alluding to when you say that even two experts that have been trained for decades in a given area might come to a different decision. And I think that to me hints at the complexity of biomedicine that exists and the challenge of actually finding what in machine learning we like to call as ground truth. So having some level of certainty that this is reality, because there isn't necessarily always an agreement.
1: Agreed. Yeah.
0: I think there's also this, um,
1: there's, there's two sort of extra wrinkles. One is that we record data on people in the healthcare system when they are sick, and we record the most data when they are at their sickest. So if you mm-hmm. understand what uh, to understand what it means to be healthy, you would have to have data on people when they are not sick, and we we don't record that right now, um, and so we don't have a good idea of what normal looks like for uh, a broad selection of people. And then I think additionally, you know, uh, for for some of these variances in treatment, right, there are there are hierarchies of how you might come by them, and uh, we we expanded on this a little bit in. Um, one of the papers about uh, you know these these different kinds of disparities that you can have, it could just be that the case is very difficult and we don't know what the ground truth is, and so clinically um, there's going to be variance because uh, we don't understand the condition well enough or. Um, you know, there's there's just uncertainty fundamentally. It could also be that there's differences in training between the doctors, um, different expertise level. I've seen somebody who looks like this patient recently, so I know what to do. There's also very real bias, right? We know that, you know, doctors are humans. Humans are
0: biased. And so doctors right. are also biased. <laughs> yeah, that's a great use of transitive property. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to talk exactly about that bias in machine learning, specifically in healthcare. You've done quite a lot of work in elucidating some examples of where bias can come about and some of the impacts it can have. Can we talk about two of your projects in particular? One of where you looked at hurtful words and quantifying biases in clinical contextual word embeddings, and then the other one in looking at deep chest X-ray classifiers and identifying fairness gaps in those. Maybe we can start with with the first project.
1: Sure. I think that the the way to look at both of these projects is that these are common tasks. Um, And again, a lot of the issue uh, when we move into healthcare is that uh, you can't just take a model that works well in other settings and assume it will work well in this setting because the data is of the same nature. So for example, with Hurtful Words, uh, the goal there was to try to quantify what kind of biases exist uh, in clinical contextual word embedding models? So you may have heard of these transformer models in natural language processing. They're uh, contextual word embedding models that take in lots and lots of examples of sentences and paragraphs and documents. And then they're able to generate very realistic um, you know, Turing test, uh, beatable sentences, paragraphs, and in some cases, stories and uh, it's it's been a really remarkable um improvement in natural language generation in the past uh, three, four years. I would say it's one of the things that has advanced most quickly and has been uh, really exciting in the machine learning space. And so these models, these pre-trained models, these uh, transformers, are uh, just available publicly, which is fantastic for um you know, scientific progress, right? Because somebody trains one of these contextual language models over. Um, you know, a couple of weeks using lots and lots of computational resources. (laughs) And then you want to use them to generate uh, sentences. And so uh, it's been shown in other work that contextual language models that are trained using um, uh, text from the internet uh, are very biased. And so the associative word game uh, that you could play is, well, man is to woman as... King is to queen. Right. And so these word models can play those games. You can say, learn the association, the directional area between man is to woman. And now when I give you king, you give me what you think it matches to. And so they correctly do king to queen. But then uh, famously in these models, uh, if you say as computer scientist is to, they'll say uh, housewife. Wow. And so it's it's, and there are much uglier um, ethnic associations that they learn. So, I think that it's it's very important that we're very clear that uh, these uh, contextual word embeddings are learning uh, from human sh- human language that you speak about people of different genders and ethnicities in different ways and in derogatory ways, right? So uh, we we asked a different question. We said in the clinical space, what if you take some of these pre-trained models like Cybert? So that's a, a transformer model that's trained on PubMed? And these are these are scientific articles, right, that are um, indexed in the the PubMed system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so this is a publicly available model. Anybody can go do this if, if they want to check it out. Um, so if you ask uh, the cyber model something like, um, you know, fill in the blank for a sentence. So what that means is you can um, give it a templated sentence and you can change a word and then you can ask it, what are you going to fill in the blank with? And so we asked uh, a a templated question that we had pulled out of a real clinical note where the word that we're going to change is the first word in the sentence that has to do with the patient's race. So we'll say black patient or white patient became belligerent and violent, sent to, and then we asked this, this model trained on cyber to fill in the blank. So if we say Caucasian patient or white patient became belligerent and violent, sent to, the the transformer model fills in a hospital. If you say African, African-American or black patient became belligerent and violent, sent to, the model fills in prison. And again, this is trained on clinical, it's a clinical word embedding, right? It's, it's, uh, it's trained on uh, like uh, this this data that you would assume is not carrying the same extent uh, of the biases that you see in other sources, but it, it's, it's there, right? The ways that we speak about different ethnicities and hear specifically about Black people in scientific articles have made it so that if you used this publicly available model to fill in the blank on your clinical notes, it would recommend that white patients who become belligerent go to the hospital and Black patients who become belligerent go to prison, and that's really dangerous, right? Because uh, it's used. People use these things.
0: Yeah, honestly, that that sounds absurd that we think in some senses that, okay, a machine is objective and as a result won't carry the same, as as you said, biases that humans might have. But at the end of the day, it sounds like the data that's actually being fed into the machine is implicitly biased and, and how we refer to different people of different groups comes across that is that is very scary (laughs) it's it's pretty
1: bad this this one shocked me um i i actually asked the students to run it several times on different examples because this was so extreme i think that the thing that was sad about this is is that uh it's it's not as if uh minority or discriminated against populations do not know that science and medicine and these objective, you know, air quote, objective fields of study have been implicitly biased against them from the get-go. I think that that's that's pretty well known. If you're a uh, a racialized person or a You know, it's 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 sad. But if you're a woman, which is not a minority, just to be clear, women are not a minority on this planet. Uh, But if you if you're a woman and you complain of chest pains and nausea, um, you're having an anxiety attack. But if you're a man and you complain of chest pains and nausea, you might be having a heart attack. Go to the ER. And so these are these are well-known biases in these so-called objective sciences. But it's not just in this is one example based on the research that gets uh, published, right? So this model was was trained on published research. And so what this is showing you is that all the way from the very start of research, what kind of research gets funded? What kind of questions do we ask? What kind of graduate students do we hire? What kind of models do they train? What kind of results do we end up publishing? There's a deep, deep bias in the system. And so as researchers, I think it's our responsibility to be Uh, very frank about this and work to address that,
0: that pipeline of bias. Definitely. The problem goes back way further than any single project. It's really the entire context in which someone's doing a project might be shaped by this. How does your group think about then addressing some of these biases that you identify?
1: I think the things that we've uh talked about are uh first trying some of the uh, established solutions for debiasing models alongside known fairness metrics and what I mean by that is uh it's it's even a question of definition so if I asked you what do you mean by fair right because let's say that there's a condition um asthma right. And you can classify somebody as having asthma or no, right? But then uh, what, what rate are, am I balancing? And what am I uh, able to give up in order to balance it, right? So you could say, well, I want the same accuracy, right? But that's biased by the rate within the population, right? What if there are more um, asthmatic uh, Black Americans than white Americans, right? So then, do you want the same positive predictive value, right? Where the the number of people that you classify as positive, right, is is balanced? These are these are uh, really hard questions, especially in medicine, where there could be an asymmetry in the cost between classifying somebody as negative, and so you miss a diagnosis that could save somebody's life, versus classifying somebody, uh, you know, as positive, and now they're subjected to treatments that they should not have been subjected to, and there are very good examples on both sides of classifiers that are established in medicine that either underclassify uh, minorities and disadvantaged populations, or that overclassify minorities and disadvantaged populations, and both are bad. So the the way that we've looked at this in uh, chest X-rays is uh, we have the uh, the first problem there, where if you train a state of the art chest X-ray classifier. To train mm-hmm. uh, or to classify these these different diagnostic labels like uh, pneumonia, pneumothorax, COPD, uh, just standard things that you might want a radiologist to pull out of a, a chest X ray. Um, it actually underdiagnoses uh, minorities, um, and it underdiagnoses um, you know people on um, public insurance, and, and that's a known issue uh, in uh, a known systemic bias in the medical system anyway where you'll, you'll say, oh, it's, it's not so bad. You don't really have this. The pain is in your head. You're, you're doing okay, right? And so that's, that's something that we've tried to address in chest X-ray classifiers by saying that you have to have an equal underdiagnosis rate amongst people of different categories. But that's hard because you can't bring up the classification per- performance in one group without dropping it a little bit in the other group. Because it's a trade off. One problem might be, for example, it's very common in machine learning algorithms to say, "I, I my model needs to have at least um, three records from the patient before it can make a prediction." For example, well, who do you think doesn't have access to clinical care with enough frequency that they will have that number of records? It's the disadvantaged
0: populations,
1: exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's it's very there. You know, it's not just the models that we train. It's the data that we put into the models and how that data is generated. Um, and then when you look at models, there's a great example that was um, posted uh, on social media a couple of days ago about how if you, you know, impute uh, President Obama's face to the mean. Right. If you if you pixelate it and then try to refill it in using some of the state of the art facial image uh, generation um, technology, it it makes his face white. Right? <laughs> he, he gets imputed to uh, a white person. And there was this great comment. Uh, there was a back and forth between a couple of researchers where one researcher said, oh, that just means we need more black faces. And another researcher said, "Yes, we need more black faces. You also need to have your model not impute to the mean, but maybe impute to the median, because the mean will always ignore minority populations." That is such a good point. It, it's a very, it's a very good point, right? <laughs> I think we we have a lot of assumptions in machine learning. Um, specifically in the way we train our models, right? That well if you just fix the data my model would be fine, but that's that's not really true. Uh, often the way that you train a model is to ignore the what we call heavy tail of the distribution, hmm. right? Those hmm. those rare cases that uh, we don't have enough data for or they they look a little bit different, they look too different than the average
0: case. Yeah, so so that might work in a different kind of data set even, but one that is looking at humans and individuals, I think either we should be upweighting the importance that we give to folks that fall at the tail end of a distribution or developing entirely different predictors for different populations
1: right and i think that this is um this is a very again uh important question for uh, you know, not just for doctors, not just for researchers, but also for society. So, so we know that there have been a couple of very good clinical articles that have shown that race-matched and gender-matched patients do better um, in survival of uh, things like heart attack, for example. There's a there's a crazy uh, quote in in one of these papers that uh, I can send your way about. Uh, you know, when we're looking at uh, heart attack survival, women die more than uh, than men do. But this effect is driven by male doctors um, who are taking care of female patients. And then there's this, uh, this second part that says, but this effect is mitigated. It's lessened. It's reduced when uh, these male doctors have either more female colleagues or have treated more female patients. Hmm. I always joke to my patients, you know, that's the best dose response effect you could find. Right. You know, as, <laughs> as you are around more women, you kill fewer of them. That's great. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> it's it's a it's a terrible joke, but it's also uh, that means that this could be fixed. That's what I hear when I when I read a, a paragraph or a sentence like that that says, uh, you know these these male doctors who disproportionately account for uh, female deaths in in heart attack. Um, you can change this, right? That's what that's what gives uh, me sort of the the hope that machine learning does not have to be a replication of the existing biases in healthcare. It could be transformative if we could show a doctor that the care that they're giving to this patient, this black woman is different than the care that they just gave to another patient, a white male patient. Maybe we can change clinical
0: practice. Maybe we can improve clinical practice. That is incredibly empowering by first recognizing and identifying that, hey, maybe there are some discrepancies in how we treat different patients, and then using that as a call to action. Yeah, I agree. Do you think that there are other gaps that remain to be filled in order to really realize this promise of effectively applying machine learning in healthcare?
1: I think, along with some of the gaps we've discussed, like funding, um, modeling, data collection, data inclusion. Researcher inclusion; those are all really important. There's a last gap that I think uh, is is understudied and very uh, interesting, which is um, the human-computer interaction side of it. You know, I I uh, I could train the best model in the world. Let's say it's fair. Let's say it's uh, you know 90 percent accurate at diagnosing. Uh, a condition of interest in men and women, black and white, different insurance types. I've made it, right? It's, it's gold. Um, if I deploy that model, maybe it just won't be listened to. And maybe it won't be listened to based on something silly like uh, it, it talks in a female voice. It talks in a male voice. The text that it puts up with the alert is pink, right? The text that it puts up in the alert is blue, it texts you when you're on break. It uh, beeps your pager when you're in the middle of taking care of another patient. I think that a lot of the, the work that's being done now, including my own, is focusing on these first parts of, hey, we've got big problems in the models. Um, let's try to fix those. I think that there is a an enormous challenge and therefore opportunity. Once we get past some of these issues, or or once we we work through them to to some extent, in how we deploy models in a way that they are useful, and, and that is, I think, uh, going to be its own uh, very very interesting challenge.
0: Absolutely. Well, I like your framing of it as one grand opportunity, and hopefully people interested in the space are now equipped with some of the insights into what to look out for and what to be aware of as they go and try to develop and deploy new models in healthcare. Marzia, it's been a pleasure having you here today. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of The Data Pulse. If any of the terms used in today's conversation were foreign to you, feel free to check out the podcast glossary where I've included definitions and links to resources that my guests have shared. Be sure to tune in next week to once again get a sneak peek into the pulse of data-driven biomedicine.